0: Section 109, Part 2 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of London, Volume 2, by George W. M. Reynolds. Section 109, Part 2. The History of a Gamester four years rolled away from the date of my father's death and not once during that period did i touch a card nor even behold a dice box i had purchased a majority and remained unattached i was also now the father of three children one girl and two boys and everything seemed to contribute to my felicity we had a select circle of friends real friends and not useless acquaintances, and our domestic economy was such as to enable us to live considerably within our income. Such was my position when a friend one day proposed that I should become a member of a club to which he already belonged. Mrs. Vandeleur and Julia, seeing that I was very much at home, thought that this step would ensure me a little recreation and change of scene and therefore advocated the propriety of accepting the offer. I was balloted for and elected. My friend was a well-meaning, sincere and excellent man, who had not the slightest idea of placing me in the way of temptation when he made the proposal just mentioned. Neither had my mother-in-law or wife the least suspicion that play ever took place at a club. I was equally ignorant of the fact, until I became initiated, and then I perceived the precipice on which I had suddenly placed myself. But I dared not make any observation to my friend on this subject, for he was totally unaware that gaming had ever been amongst the number of my failings. To be brief, I had not been a member of the club six weeks, when I was one evening induced TO SIT DOWN TO A RUBBER OF WHIST WITH THREE STAID OLD GENTLEMEN WHO ONLY PLAYED FOR AMUSEMENT. THERE CANNOT BE ANY HARM IN DOING THIS, SAID I TO MYSELF, BECAUSE NO MONEY IS STAKED. MOREOVER, EVEN IF THERE WERE, I HAVE NOW ACQUIRED SUCH CONTROL OVER MYSELF THAT I COULD NOT POSSIBLY FORGET MY SOLEMN VOWS IN THIS RESPECT. THUS ENDEAVORING TO soothe MY CONSCIENCE, for I knew that I was doing wrong, but would not admit it even to myself, I sat down. We played for an hour, at the expiration of which one gentleman left and another took his place. The newcomer proposed shilling points, just to render the game interesting. The other two gentlemen agreed. I could not possibly, at least I thought I could not, seem so churlish, or so mean as to refuse to play on those terms. Trifling as the amount either to be won or lost could be, the mere fact of playing for money aroused within me that unnatural excitement, which, as I have before informed your Highness, is alone experienced by those who have a confirmed predilection for gambling. And I now discovered, when it was too late, ...that this predilection, on my part, had only been lying dormant and was not crushed. No, for I played that evening with a zest, with an interest, with a real love, ...which superseded all other considerations, and I did not return home until a late hour. Next day I was ashamed of myself. I was vexed at my weakness... I trembled lest I should again fall. For a fortnight I did not go near the club, but at the expiration of that period a dinner took place to celebrate the fourth anniversary of the foundation of the establishment, and I found it difficult to excuse myself. I accordingly went, and in the evening I sat down to a rubber of whist. Afterwards I lounged about a table, where Ecarté was being played. I staked some money, won, and fell once more. I shall not linger upon details. The current of my fatal predilection, dammed up for five years and a half, had now broken through its floodgates and rushed on with a fury rendered more violent by the lengthened accumulation of volume and power. Écarté was my favorite game, and I found several members of the club willing to play with me on all occasions. For some time I neither gained nor lost to any important amount, but one evening the play ran high, and, hurried along by that singular infatuation which prompts the gamester to exert himself to recover his losses, I staked large sums. Fortune was opposed to me, and I retired a loser of nearly 2,000 pounds. The ice being once more completely broken, I plunged headlong into the fatal vortex, and my peace of mind was gone. My habits became entirely changed. Instead of passing the greater portion of my time with my family, I was now frequently absent for the entire afternoon and the best part of the night. Julia's cheek grew gradually pale, her manner changed from artless gaiety to pensive melancholy, and, though she did not reproach me in words, yet her glances seemed to ask wherefore I remained away from her. Mrs. Vandeleur noticed the depressed spirits of her daughter, but did not altogether comprehend the reason because, although she observed that I was out a great deal more than I used to be, my angel of a wife never told her that it was sometimes two, three, or even four in the morning ere I returned home. The real truth could not, however, remain very long concealed from Mrs. Vandeleur. She began to be uneasy when I dined at the club on an average of twice a week, When this number was doubled and I devoted four days to the club and only three to my family, Mrs. Vandeleur asked me in the kindest way possible if my home were not comfortable or if Julia ceased to please me. I satisfied her as well as I could, and in a short time I began to devote another day to the club and only two to Russell Square. Paler and more pale grew Julia's cheek. The spirits of the children seemed to droop sympathetically, and Mrs. Vandeleur could no longer conceal her uneasiness. She accordingly seized an opportunity to speak to me in private, and she said, "'William, for God's sake, what does this mean? "'You are killing your poor, uncomplaining wife by inches. "'Either you love another, or you gamble.' it be the latter may god almighty have pity upon my daughter and the excellent lady burst into tears i endeavored to console her i swore that her suspicions were totally unfounded but alas no change in my behavior tended to corroborate my asseverations i persisted in my fearful course and, as if I were not already surrounded by elements of ruin sufficiently powerful, I became a member of Crockford's. In saying that, I mentioned sufficient to convince Your Highness that I rushed willfully and blindly on to the goal of utter destruction. My fortune disappeared rapidly, and when it was gone, I sold my commission, and then applied to Goldshig, who lent me money upon the most exorbitant terms but let me pass over the incidents of three years at the expiration of that time how was i situated what was the condition of my family painful as these reminiscences are i will not conceal the facts from your highness in a chamber at the house in russell square mrs vandeleur lay upon her deathbed julia pale with haggard eyes, sunken cheeks, and appearance so careworn that it would have moved even the heart of an overseer or master of a workhouse, Julia hung, weeping bitterly over the pillow. In the nursery, a servant was endeavoring to pacify the children, who were crying because they knew that their dear grandmama was very, very ill. In the kitchen... "'an ill-looking fellow was dozing by the fire. "'He was a bailiff's man in possession, "'for there was an execution levied on my property. "'And I, where was I? "'Gone to solicit Goldshig, the Jew, for a few days' grace, "'the sale having been advertised, to take place next morning. "'Thus was this once happy home, now invaded by misery and distress.' Thus was an amiable wife, plunged into sorrows, so keen, woes so bitter, afflictions so appalling, that it was no wonder if her charming form had wasted away, and the frightful aspect of the demon of despair had chased the roses from her cheeks. And thus, too, was an excellent lady dying prematurely, with that worst of the destroyer's plagues, A BROKEN HEART. It was about five o'clock in the evening when I returned, after vainly waiting six hours to see Goldshig, who was not at home. Wearied and anxious, I left a note for him at his office and retraced my miserable way to Russell Square. On my entrance, Julia hastened to meet me, for she had heard my knock. "'What tidings?' she inquired in a rapid tone. I informed her of what I had done. Her countenance became even more wretched than it was before. Oh, that they will not molest my dear, dear mother on her deathbed, she shrieked, clasping her hands frantically together. I turned aside and shed bitter, burning tears. The children now came rushing into the room. Alas, poor innocents! They knew not of the ruin that was hanging over their heads, and when they took my hands, kissed them, and said, ''Oh, we are so glad that dear Papa has come home!'' I thought my heart would break. My God! My God! Had all the misery which weighed upon our house been caused by me? I approached my wife. I took her in my arms. "'I murmured as I kissed her pale cheek. "'Can you... can you forgive me?' "'Oh, have I ever reproached you, William?' "'She asked, endeavoring to smile in gratitude for my caresses. "'No, never, never, poor dear afflicted creature,' "'I exclaimed wildly. "'And it is your resignation, your goodness, "'which makes my conduct so black, so very black.' She wound her arms about my neck and said in her soft, gentle tone, Will you not come and see my mother? I started back in horror. She comprehended me and observed, Do not fear reproaches. But come with me, I conjure you. I took the hand which she extended to me. Holy God, how thin that hand had become! How skeleton-like had grown the taper fingers! Though it was my own wife's hand, I shuddered at the touch. She seemed to read my thoughts, for she pressed my hand affectionately, and then wiped away her tears. A deep sob escaped her bosom, and she hurried me towards the sick-room. The children followed us without opposition on their mother's part, and in a few moments the mournful group approached the bed of death. I had not seen Mrs. Vandeleur for nearly a week, and I was shocked, oh, painfully shocked at the alteration which had taken place in her. From a fine, stout, handsome, healthy woman, she had wasted away to a mere shadow. Julia was a shadow herself, but her mother seemed to be the shade Of a shadow merciful heavens and all this had been wrought by me kneeling by the side of the bed i took the transparent hand that the dying woman tendered me and pressed it to my lips my brain seemed to whirl and all became confusion and bewilderment around me I remember a low and plaintive voice assuring me that heaven would yet forgive me the broken heart of the mother if I would only be kind to the daughter. I have a faint recollection of that dying voice, imploring me to quit my evil ways for the sake of her whom I had sworn to love and protect, for the sake of the children who were sobbing bitterly close by and methinks that I reiterated those solemn vows of repentance which I had before so often uttered but to break. Then I was suddenly aroused from a sort of stupor into which I fell, kneeling as I still was, aroused too by a piercing scream. Starting up, I caught the fainting form of Julia in my arms, and a glance towards the bed showed me that her mother was no more. Her prophetic words were fulfilled. The widow, who gave me her only treasure, had died of a broken heart. Heaven only knows how I passed the wretched night that followed. I remember that the dawn of a cold March morning, accompanied by a cheerless drizzling rain, found me pacing the parlour in a despairing manner, I do believe I was half mad, and such horrible ideas haunted me. I thought of killing my wife and children, and then blowing out my own brains. Then I resolved to fly, and never see them more. In another minute I wept bitterly when I asked myself, but what would become of them? I writhed in mental agony as I found no response to this question. And when I pictured to myself all the amiable qualities of my wife, her gentleness, her goodness, her endearments, her unimpaired love, and then thought of the little innocents with their winning ways, their little tricks, their pretty sayings, and their cherub countenances, oh, God, no words can explain how acute my sufferings were. From that painful reverie I was aroused by a loud commanding knock at the front door. There was an ominous insolence in that knock, and the worst fears entered my mind. Alas, they were full soon confirmed. The broker made his appearance, accompanied by his men, and the house was at the same time invaded by a posse of Jews, THE USUAL BUYERS AT SALES, EFFECTED UNDER INSTRUCTIONS FROM THE SHERIFF. HASTENING THE BURST OF ANGUISH THAT ROSE TO MY LIPS, I DREW THE BROKER ASIDE, ACQUAINTED HIM WITH THE FACT OF MY MOTHER-IN-LAW'S DEATH ON THE PREVIOUS EVENING, AND IMPLORED HIS forbearance FOR A WEEK. HE QUIETLY TOOK A PINCH OF SNUFF, AND THEN OBSERVED THAT HE WAS NOT THE MASTER, THAT HE HAD NO POWER TO INTERFERE that the advertisements announcing the sale had appeared in the papers, and that the business must proceed without delay. Remonstrances, threats, prayers were all useless. The sale commenced, and I was forced to repair to my wife's room to break the fatal news to her. She uttered no reproach. She even conquered her anguish as much as she could, and the children were then ordered to be dressed directly. Presently, Julia inquired in a meek and timid tone if I had money enough to buy in the furniture of the room she meant where her mother lay. I answered in the affirmative, but it was only to console her, for I had not a guinea nor a friend. In a state of distraction, I returned to the parlor where the sale was in progress. "'Merciful heavens! Foremost of the buyers was Beaumont, my mortal enemy, bidding for the most costly articles that were put up. "'In a moment I felt as if I could fall on him and tear him to pieces. "'He saw me, and, although taking no apparent notice of me, I beheld a sardonic smile of triumph upon his lips. "'I could bear no more.' Reckless of all, of everything, I rushed from the house. For hours and hours did I wander about like a maniac, walking hastily along, without any defined object, and not even observing the crowds that passed me. Everything was confused. Bells seemed to be ringing in my very brain. It was dark when I thought of returning home, and then I felt shocked at the idea of having deserted my poor wife and helpless children at such a time. My ideas were now more collected, and I hastened to Russell Square. All was quiet in the house, but they were evidently still there, for a faint light gleamed through one of the shutters. I knocked with trembling hand. The door was immediately opened by Julia, "'Oh, thank God that you have come back!' she exclaimed, "'sinking half-fainting into my arms. "'You know not what horrible fears have oppressed me!' "'I embraced her tenderly. "'Never, never did she seem more dear to me. "'The children also flocked around me, "'and the tender word, Papa, wrung from me a flood of tears, "'which relieved me. "'I then made certain inquiries, and— learnt the most heart-rending particulars. Everything was sold and removed, even to the children's little beds. But the worst of all was that the corpse of Julia's mother lay upon the floor of the chamber where she had breathed her last. But let me hurry over these dreadful details. A few trinkets belonging to Julia yet remained, and the sale of those ornaments... "'Presence made to her by me in happier days "'enabled us to bury her mother decently "'and to remove to a small, ready-furnished lodging. "'Julia supported these sad afflictions "'and reverses with angelic resignation, "'and never did a single reproach emanate from her lips. "'Neither did she neglect the children. "'On the contrary, her attention to them redoubled.' now that she had no longer a servant to aid her. But, alas, her strength was failing visibly. Her constitution was undermined by misery and woe. And still it seemed, much though we had already suffered, as if our sorrows had only just begun, for a few weeks after the sale of my property, and, just as I had obtained a clerk's situation, in a mercantile house, I was arrested for the balance of the debt due to Goldschig, the auction not having produced enough to liquidate his claims. This blow was terrible indeed, as it paralyzed all my energies. I was taken to White Cross Street Prison, the only prospect of obtaining my release being the insolvent's court. I was accordingly compelled to apply to a philanthropic association to advance me six pounds for that purpose. The request was complied with, my wife went herself to receive the money, and she brought it to me in the prison. I compelled her to retain a sovereign for the support of herself and children, and I managed to borrow three pounds more from the only one of all my late friends who would even read a letter that came from me so utterly was I despised by them all. And now, will it be believed that, such was my infatuation in respect to play, I actually gambled with my fellow prisoners, staking the money that had been obtained with so much difficulty to pay a lawyer to conduct my business in the insolvents' court? Yes, while my poor wife was sitting up nearly all night to earn a trifle with her needle or in painting maps, while my children were dependent for their daily bread upon the exertions of their poor dying mother, I, wretch that I was, lost the very means that were to restore them to me. When the money had all disappeared, I became like a madman and attempted to lay violent hands upon myself. I was taken to the infirmary of the prison where I lay delirious with fever for six weeks. At the expiration of that time I recovered, and the humanity of the governor of the jail secured the services of a lawyer to file my petition and schedule in the insolvent's court. The day of hearing came, and I was discharged. But alas, I returned to the humble lodging occupied by my family without a hope, without resources. Nevertheless, the angel Julia received me with smiles, and the children also smiled with their sickly, wan and famished countenances. Then, in the course of a conversation which Julia endeavored to render as little mournful as possible, I learnt that Colonel Beaumont had been persecuting her with his dishonorable offers— THAT HE HAD DOGGED HER IN HER WAY TO THE PRISON WHEN SHE WENT THITHER TO SEE ME, THAT HE HAD EVEN INTRUDED HIMSELF UPON HER IN HER POOR DWELLING OF ONE BACK ROOM. INDEED, IT WAS ONLY IN CONSEQUENCE OF THIS VISIT THAT MY WIFE MENTIONED THE CIRCUMSTANCE TO ME AT ALL. BUT SO PURE WAS HER SOUL THAT SHE COULD NOT KEEP SECRET FROM ME AN OCCURRENCE ON WHICH, DID I HEAR IT FROM STRANGER LIPS, A DISAGREEABLE CONSTRUCTION MIGHT BE PLACED ill, weak, dying as she was, she was still sweetly interesting, and I could well understand how an unprincipled libertine might seek to possess her. Without allowing Julia to comprehend the full extent of the impression made upon me by this information, I vowed within myself a desperate vengeance against that man who seemed to take a delight in persecuting me and mine. But for the present, the condition of my family occupied nearly all my thoughts. Poor Julia was killing herself with hard, hard toil at the needle, and the children were only the ghosts of what they were in the days of our prosperity. I was, however, fortunate enough to obtain another situation, with a salary of twenty-eight shillings a week and for some months we lived in comparative tranquility, if not in happiness. But Julia always had smiles for me. Smiles, too, when the worm of an insidious disease was gnawing at her heart's core. And for my part, my lord, whenever I hear the discontented husband or the insolent libertine depreciating the character of woman, the memory of my own devoted wife instantly renders me woman's champion. And lost, low, wretched as I have been, I have never failed, even in the vilest pothouse in which my miseries have compelled me to seek shelter, to vindicate the sex against the aspersions of the malevolent. Six months after my release from prison, the smallpox invaded the house in which we lodged. And so virulent was the malady that within three weeks it carried off two of my children, the girl who was the eldest and the younger boy. I need not attempt to describe my own grief nor the anguish of my wife. The blow was too much for her, and she was thrown upon a sickbed. At the same time, my employer failed in business, and I accordingly lost my situation. I was returning home one evening, very miserable after several hours' vain search for another place, when I met a gentleman who had once been a brother officer in the regiment in which I first served. I made known to him my deplorable situation, assuring him that both my wife and my only remaining child were at that moment lying dangerously ill and that I was on my way home without a shilling to purchase even the necessaries of life. He said that he had no objection to serve me, and, giving me a guinea for immediate wants, desired me to call on him next day at a particular address in German Street. I hastened joyfully home and communicated my good fortune to poor Julia. On the following morning... I repaired to German Street. My friend received me cordially, and then explained his views. To my profound surprise, I learnt that he was the proprietor of a common gaming-house, and his proposal was that I should receive three guineas a week for merely lounging about the playrooms of an evening, and acting as a decoy to visitors. My situation was so desperate "'that I consented, and ten guineas were given me on the spot "'to fit myself out in a becoming manner. "'I returned home and informed Julia "'that I had obtained the place of a night clerk in a coach office. "'She believed me. "'A smile played on her sickly countenance, "'and she was soon afterwards able to leave her bed. "'I entered on my new employment.' and all that fatal thirst for gaming which had plunged me into such depths of misery, was immediately revived. The proprietor of the hell would not, of course, permit his decoys to play legitimately on their own account, but we were allowed to make bets with strangers in the rooms. This I did, and as the passion gained upon me, I visited other gambling houses when my services were not required at the one where I was engaged. Thus I again plunged into that dreadful course, and my poor wife soon suspected the fatal truth. Our little girl died, thank God, at this period. Start not when I express my gratitude to heaven that it was so, for what could have become of her during the period of utter destitution— which soon after supervened. Yes, my lord, scarcely a year had passed when I was hurled into the very depths of want and misery. I was accused of cheating my employer at the gaming house. The imputation was as false as ever villainous lie could be. And from that moment forth, the door of every hell was closed against me, I was also unable to obtain an honest situation, and after Julia and myself had parted with all our wearing apparel, save the few things upon our backs, we were one night thrust forth into the streets, houseless beggars. It was in the middle of winter. The snow lay upon the ground, and the cold was intense. My poor wife, in the last stage of consumption, and with only a thin gown and a miserable rag of a shawl to cover her, clung to my arm and even then attempted to console me. Oh, God, what an angel was that woman! We roved through the streets, for we dared not sit down on a doorstep, through fear of being frozen to death. What my feelings were, it is impossible to explain. Morning. The cold, wintry morning found us dragging our weary forms along the Dover Road. We had no object in proceeding that way, but with tacit consent we seemed bent upon leaving a city where we had endured so much. At length, Julia murmured in a faint tone, William, dearest, I cannot move a step farther, and she sank half-fainting, upon a bank covered with snow. I was nearly distracted, but still she smiled, smiled, and pressed my hand tenderly, even while the ice-cold finger of death touched her heart. I raised her in my arms. My God, she was as light as a child, so emaciated in person and so thinly clad was she, I bore her to a neighboring cottage, which was fortunately tenanted by kind and hospitable people, who immediately received the dying woman into their abode. The good mistress of the house gave up her bed to Julia, while her husband hastened to Blackheath for a doctor, and I, kneeling by the side of my poor wife, implored her forgiveness for all the miseries she had endured through me. Do not speak in that manner, my dearest William, she said, in a faint tone as she drew me towards her. For I have always loved you, and I am sure you have loved me in return. Alas, my adored husband, what is to become of you? I am going to a better world, where I shall meet our departed children. But, ah, to what sorrows do I leave you? Oh! This is the pang which I feel upon my deathbed, and it is more than I can bear, for I love you, William, as never woman yet loved. And when I am no more, do not remember any little sufferings which you may imagine that you have caused me, for if there be anything to forgive, God knows how sincerely I do forgive you. Think of me sometimes, William, and remember that as I have ever loved you, so would I continue to love you were I spared. But her voice had gradually been growing fainter and her articulation more difficult as she uttered those loving words which death rudely cut short. The medical man came. It was too late. All was over. Then did I throw myself upon that senseless form and accuse myself of having broken the heart of the best of women. Oh, I thought, if I could only recall the past, if the last few years of my life could be spent over again, if my beloved wife, my little ones, and my fortune were still left to me, how different would my conduct be? But repentance was too late. The work was done. And the consummation of the task of ruin— "'sorrow and death was accomplished. "'Wretch! "'Wretch that I was! "'The poor people at whose cottage my wife thus breathed her last "'were very kind to to me. "'They endeavored to solace my affliction "'and insisted that I should remain with them "'at least until after the funeral. "'And if my poor Julia's remains received decent interment, if she were spared the last ignominy of a parish funeral, which would have crowned all the sad memories that remained to me in respect to her, it was through the benevolence of those poor people and the surgeon who had been called in. When I had followed the corpse of my poor wife to the grave, I returned to London and, assuming another name, procured a humble employment in the city. Would you believe, my lord, that one who had held the rank of a field officer became the follower of a bailiff, a catchpole, a sort of vampire feeding itself upon the vitals of the poor and unfortunate. Yet, such was my case, and even in that detestable capacity I experienced one day of unfeigned pleasure, one day of ineffable satisfaction, and that was upon being employed to arrest and convey to White Cross Street Prison my mortal enemy, Colonel Beaumont. Yes, he also was ruined by play, and overwhelmed with difficulties. And at whose suit was he captured? At that of Goldshig the Jew. The colonel was playing at hide-and-seek, but I tracked him out. Night and day did I pursue my inquiries until I learnt that he occupied a miserable lodging in the Old Bailey, and there he was taken. He languished for six months in prison, deserted by his friends, and compelled to receive the city allowance. Every Sunday during that period did I visit the jail to gloat upon his miseries. At length, he died in the infirmary and was buried as a pauper. Shortly after that event, I lost my place through having shown some kindness to a poor family in whose house I was placed in possession under an execution, and from that time until yesterday my life has been a series of such miseries, such privations, such maddening afflictions, that it is most marvelous how I ever could have surmounted them. Indeed, I am astonished that suicide has not long ago terminated my wretched career. Your Highness saw how I was spurned from the door of that temple of infamy, which had absorbed a considerable part of my once ample means. But that was not the first, no, nor the fiftieth time that, when driven to desperation, I have vainly implored succor of those who had formerly profited by my follies." my vices. In conclusion, permit me to assure your Highness that, if the most heartfelt gratitude on the part of a wretch like me be in any way a recompense for that bounty which has relieved me from the most woeful state of destitution and want, then that reward is yours, for I am grateful. Oh, God only knows how deeply grateful." "'Say no more upon that subject,' exclaimed Richard, who was profoundly affected by the history which he had just heard. "'From this day forth you shall never experience want again, provided you adhere to your resolves to abandon those temples of ruin in which fortune, reputation, and happiness, yes, and the happiness of others, are all engulfed. But for the present we have both a duty to perform.' "'Last night, at the door of Crockford's Club, "'I observed a young man in the society of two villains, "'whom I have, alas, ample cause to remember. "'This young man, of whom I speak, "'drew forth his purse to assist you "'at the moment when I interfered. "'Yes, I saw him, and I know who he is, my lord,' "'replied the Major. "'His name is Egerton. "'He lives in Stretton Street.' "'and his fortune is rapidly passing into the pockets "'of swindlers and blacklegs. "'It was my intention to call upon him "'and warn him of the frightful precipice upon which he stands. "'But, alas, too well do I know that such is the infatuation "'which possesses the gamester. "'Enough!' interrupted Richard. "'That idea must not deter me "'from performing what I conceive to be a duty.' "'and you must aid me in the task. "'If your highness will show me how I can be instrumental "'in rescuing that young man from the jaws of destruction,' "'exclaimed Major Anderson, "'gladly, most gladly, will I lend my humble aid. "'You speak as one who is anxious to atone "'for the misdeeds of the past,' said the prince. "'And so long as such be your feelings, "'you will find a sincere friend in me.' In respect to this foolish young man, who is rushing headlong to ruin, caution must be used, or else those arch-profligates, Chichester and Harborough, will frustrate my designs. It is for you to seek an interview with Mr. Egerton, and inform him that the Prince of Montoni is desirous to see him upon business of a most serious and of altogether a private nature." "'The wishes of your highness shall be attended to,' replied Major Anderson. "'It is useless to attempt to find Egerton alone at this time of day, "'but tomorrow morning I will call on him at an early hour.' "'The prince was satisfied with this arrangement "'and took his departure from the lodging of the ruined gamester. "'Reader, there is no vice which is so fertile "'in the various elements of misery as gambling.' End of Section 109, Part 2. Recording by Linda Johnson.